Welcome to BuildCast, a podcast brought to you by BCG Digital Ventures. Hi, everybody. My name is Sid Shah. I'm a managing director and partner at BCG Digital Ventures. A lot has changed over the past few weeks with the COVID-19 crisis changing the way we live and work and having a huge impact on technology and business. With this in mind, we're putting out a series of short BuildCast episodes covering how things are changing. For this episode, I'm lucky to be joined by my good buddy, Dr. Nate Baer. Nate is a managing director and partner and is a leader in our healthcare practice. He recently participated in the MIT COVID-19 hackathon, which we talk about, and thinks a lot about areas such as digital therapeutics, remote telehealth, antibody testing. Um, so without further ado, Nate, welcome. So Nate, there's, a, you know, there's obviously a lot of news right now. I mean, every everybody's feed is COVID, COVID, COVID. And, you know, there's a lot of information out there about different types of business models that are getting created specifically in healthcare. You know, you and I have spoken at length about telemedicine. What do you think are the, the opportunities and the limitations of, of telehealth and, and how that can help not only today, but in future um, kind of pandemics and just, you know, mainstream health going forward after this situation we're in? Yeah, I, I'm really excited about what's happening in telemedicine. I think, uh, I mean, you can just look at the Google Trends data and you can see the spike in interest in telemedicine. This has been a space that has been, you know, very exciting and, you know, kind of obvious over, over time. You know, we are, we're all used to kind of calling our doctors and, you know, formalizing that process into a visit um, is really kind of the cornerstone of, of telehealth. But even then, penetration was, was kind of in the, in the single digits and it was, it was growing. And we've just seen a boom um, since uh, since the crisis hit in telemedicine, which is fantastic. You know, people are forced to stay in place, and they still need a way to to uh, connect with medical professionals. You know, that said, I I think that you know telemedicine in, in its simplest form of being able to you know video call or chat uh, with your physician or nurse does have some limitations. Um, if I think about you know what it takes to take care of someone to keep them healthy. I need to get information about that person. There's a, there's a data collecting aspect. And then I need to offer some sort of treatment. Telemedicine offers an avenue to get information by by speaking with someone directly. And the medical professionals may or may not have access to any sort of uh, medical history as well. Um, but where it's limited is it, it it's not necessarily, you know, connected in to any sort of labs or vital signs or, you know, any of the normal checks that you might get you know, when, when you visit a doctor's office, I think, you know, we're all used to, you know, stepping on the scale, getting our blood pressure taken. But a lot of this remote monitoring technology is out there and is also growing. So what I'm really excited about with, with you know, telemedicine leading the charge is that there are, you know, a lot of adjacent opportunities created, uh, both in remote monitoring, um, you know, capturing vital signs, connecting into things like the, you know, the monitor in your Apple Watch, as well as in offering care, you know, online pharmacies that are delivering pills to your door, uh, more sort of, you know, mobile nursing and physician solutions, uh, like those being offered by heal.com, or even in the way that clinical trials are virtualizing, you know, they're going, people are sending uh, phlebotomists to, uh, to houses just to draw blood directly instead of having to show up to the clinic. So I'm super enthusiastic, but there are some limitations. You know, limitations obviously are, are where all the opportunities are. Um, one of the limitations I see when you talk about a lot of these um, great solutions is probably trust, right? And how do you, how does, how does some of these point solutions 
develop trust with the consumer. So it's actually something that becomes scalable and something that the mainstream uses and not just a couple kind of forward thinking individuals that that are willing to try new technologies. To me, that's really the story of digital health. You know, there was this notion that uh, the consumer angle was going to blow up the normal healthcare system. And I think what we found is that patients like to listen to their doctors. And so the way you get trust is you build systems that doctors want to use and they ask their patients to go use it. So, you know, a great example of that is I've got an Apple, Apple Watch on. If I went to my doctor and asked my doctor, you know, would you like to see the last month of my Apple Watch data? The answer is probably no. <laughs> they don't yeah. really have anything they can do with it. Right. You know, that said, there are remote monitoring solutions that get clinically validated that physicians say, hey, that's useful information to me. And I will go ask my patients to go collect that information. Uh, but that's got to be the standard, you know, you, working through the standard clinical channels because patients listen to their doctors. So you're talking about packaging, essentially. There's, there's data in your Apple. There's data in your Fitbit. There's some data with your doctors. There's some data with labs. Who's able to package this or who do you think is leading the charge in packaging this in a way that a doctor will say, yeah, shoot that email to me. Shoot that text that has the link to all your records. You know, honestly, I haven't seen someone do it necessarily holistically. The, the standard type of systems that the physicians look at, you know, their, their electronic medical records, um, you know, you've got the epics and Cerners of the world. They are, you know, bigger systems. They're not necessarily, you know, inserting all, all these new data sets in, in front of doctors um, based on the existing workflows they have. More and more, I see, you know, well-packaged, but kind of point solutions. I, um, I really like the technologies that iRhythm has put out on basically kind of um, optimizing what a, you know, what was a clunky Holter monitor is now kind of a slick system to, you know, track if someone has atrial fibrillation. Um, and I think, you know, the more and more that we see, you know, solutions that are, you know, designed better, it could even be a web interface. It doesn't necessarily have to go through the EMR, but ideally it goes through the EMR. The more and more we see that kind of like design thinking infused with the physician in mind as the consumer of the data, the, you know, the more traction we'll get. So it sounds like this is a, a pretty wide open space. Nate, you mentioned data. That, that makes me think about kind of Big Brother, uh, that line of privacy. We're getting into some, some uncharted territory. There's discussions of contact tracing, which are kind of opt-in mechanisms. There's other discussions going on. You know, are, are, we, are we going and slipping down a, a place where we might not be able to recover from from a privacy perspective? Well... Slipping, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, I, we have we slipped. I don't think we've slipped yet. The, okay. uh, but but there's certainly a lot of talk about this. You know, when you look at the type of contact tracing uh, that was employed in other countries, it was very aggressive. You know, you've got this this Alibaba app that they were using in China, where someone basically had to show that they were green to you know enter certain buildings. That's just not something that we're going to do in the U.S. So now what we're seeing are, uh, you know, these types of solutions like uh, MIT is putting out that are more kind of peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, you know, Bluetooth enabled where, you know, privacy is built in. That's encouraging. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see more solutions like that that still ensure people's privacy. That said, that's really on the, the side of, you know, have I been in contact with someone who has COVID-19? And am I safe to go do other things? The bigger concern I have is the rhetoric happening right now around how antibody testing can allow us to go back to work. Yeah, um, bothers me too. The, the, the concern is, do I have to go get some sort of piece of clinical data to work? Just philosophically, I have major issues with that. 
it, it might be necessary. And I think what we need to understand is if it's necessary, then, you know, what are the implications? We've now set a precedent for, you know, what sort of clinical data under what circumstances to work. You know, how do we define that precedent? One that what is going to be defined as the next crisis where we're going to allow that sort of thing? Or, you know, alternatively, is there a way to just make all of this data infrastructure disappear, you know, like the Mission Impossible tape? But I think that that needs to be, you know, well understood, uh, in particular in the U.S., given the emphasis on privacy in our society and culture. Yeah. So here's the here's the part that's a little bit confusing is there's a lot of different stakeholders making decisions, right? You have you have the federal government, you have the state you have the local municipality, and then you have a company, right? So the state might say, we're reopened, but the company and the state might say, guys, you're still staying at home until we figure out something we're comfortable with, right? So how do we, you know, how do you think that all plays out when you look at digital solutions that can help private companies, you know, feel empowered to make the right decision? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm really hopeful that there's going to be a broader push on analytics, uh, both in terms of how the disease is spreading, um, as well as how, you know, the different tactics that we can use to, you know, allow the country to get back to work. What I'm not seeing yet is a real appreciation for what it means to be six feet away from someone on the streets of New York City versus what it means to be six feet away from someone, you know, in the suburbs of LA, where, you know, life could be quite different. And I think we all need to, to you know, use the data, use the analytics in order to inform the tactics. Uh, and I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll still allow for the autonomy of our, you know, companies and our states and our cities, um, you know, with guidance from the federal government. But the, the, that autonomy will be guided by, you know, real data and real analysis in order to inform those tactics. Because I have a firm belief that this, you know, level of social distancing will persist, you know, one way or another for some time to come. When you talk about analytics, what analytics are you referring to? I'd like to know how certain communities will be more or less impacted by the crisis. We're starting to see kind of county to county data or differences in how different ethnicities may be, you know, more or less affected depending on how they live or uh, how, how people uh, have, have to work. So that's, you know, one thing that can inform the baseline. Uh, the other question is, if, if we go back to work, do we have any standards of, you know, how many people can be in a building based on the square footage or based on the type of work that needs to be done? How do we define essential work in, in a more stage way versus just you're essential or you're, you're not? I think we don't, we don't have a grayscale here yet. In many ways, I think people are, are you know, kind of pushing the boundaries of that in the way they operate day to day. And I think we need to get more specific. You, you recently participated in a hackathon with MIT. Yeah. Um, specifically awesome. around, uh, yeah, specifically around COVID solutions. What did you see or what kind of gave you um, excitement around what you saw during that hackathon? And is any of that, are any of those ideas uh, being moved forward into, you know, pilots? Yeah. So first of all, the remote, nature of this actually made it that much better. Instead of forcing a few hundred people to all go to one city and sit in a room together, which obviously has its limitations. You got to carve out that weekend. You, you know, people got to pay for flights, you know, whatever. Not everyone can pull that off. Instead of that, there were over 4,500 applicants to this thing. 1,500 people participated. It was all done over Zoom and Slack. And it was global. I mean, you were having these teams present where it's like, one person is sitting there in Boston, another person's in China, another person's in LA, and they're all on the same team. They've all been cranking on their idea all weekend long. And it totally blew me away how quickly these tools allowed for people all over the world to, to you know, get behind a big problem. 
I, I was, I just came away from this, you know, aside from just the individual concepts associated with COVID-19, just, you know, like the power of the people, I was really inspired by it. And, and there was almost like a forgiveness to the tools too. You know, there's like, it was like a good five to eight minutes of IT clunkingness at the end yeah. of the beginning of every session, but right. you know, it was fine. It was like, whatever, we all got to use, we all got to use Zoom and Slack and we're, there's too many of us on here to figure out exactly how we're all going to talk and what order. And we were voting on, you know, Google forms and whatnot. And, and you know, it worked, it happened. And, and I love the forgiveness on the tools. Like not everything had to be perfect and the global nature of it. And, you know, what that enabled was just, there were so many amazing ideas coming out of this. I mean, there were 10 tracks running across different problems. Um, one of the, I was in, in more of a supply chain track. I was judging on the Sunday and one of the concepts involved um, object recognition in supply chain management and I just was so impressed with the team. Uh, I've stayed in touch with them. I mean, they're really looking at it, you know, seriously as something that that um, they're going to push forward. So that's been really inspiring to to see that momentum carrying on. Yeah, that that, that sounds really interesting. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you when you think about the global nature and decentralized nature of this hackathon, did you feel like it sounds like you were really amazed with some of the ideas? Do you feel like these ideas have a better or less chance of kind of getting into the next phase because it was remote and you can't touch and feel people and really can't figure out what's the next step after the hackathon? Or do you think that that's, that's not an issue? I think in many ways, a lot of these teams had much broader exposure than they would have otherwise. There were 40 judges on Sunday. There were over 200 mentors. This community is very energized. And you know because of the remote nature, people are much more willing to reach out and continue that dialogue in a remote format. So I think it has required more tools and more coordination, but in many ways, it actually is creating more opportunity. And they're running uh, another one. Yeah. There's one focused in Africa a week from Sunday, and I'll be participating oh, really? in that one too. So this is a series that they're running. So I'm, I, I was just in touch with the organizers uh, last night and uh, really looking forward to, to getting involved in that one too, because obviously you know, Africa is earlier on the curve here. So hoping that you know people can get ahead of it. How do people get involved in that if they want to sign up? I think we'll have to post a link uh, associated with the podcast, but okay. um, there's a, the, it's the MIT Beat the Pandemic um, Hackathon Series, and uh, they can go to, the, go to this page and uh, sign right up there as a participant, or if uh, you'd like to participate as a mentor, go ahead and do that. Last question. Um, you know, obviously, we're, we're going through a global economic crisis as well, but this also seems like a really great time for healthcare innovation. Are you seeing an uptick or downtick in venture investments or, or startups coming to the table and solving really tough healthcare problems? I mean, it's clear our healthcare, healthcare system is broken more, more than ever, right? Because of, you know, it's, it's kind of stressed it more than at any other time. Are you seeing more money being thrown in? Is it more of a pause and let's wait and see how things shake out? Are you seeing more ideas come to the table? What's, uh, what's happening right now in the, in the market? I've heard a, an immediate stall in that investors sort of feel like they got to look someone in the eye face to face before they cut that check. But overall, a much stronger push for digital health. And I uh, anticipate coming out of this with much stronger pipeline of capital uh, towards early investment. But for this you know, quarter, I think those who just raised money are probably happy that they just did. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, Nate, appreciate the time. We'll talk yeah. soon. Thanks, Nate. Thank you for listening. For more information about BCG Digital Ventures, find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And stay tuned for more episodes of BuildCast.